The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 3, Saturday, November 11th, 2023. Hey everyone, this is your host Peter, with the 19th Digest of this third volume, covering Monday, November 6th through Friday, November 10th, 2023. Meanwhile Monday, Part 15. We are in the second year of Dick Giordano's column that he was writing in the early 80s for DC Comics. This particular column can be found in comics cover dated March of 1984. That means the comics were released in December of 1983, which means by the time you hear this, the Meanwhile column is in line with the same month that you're probably listening to this to, 40 years later, because I know that I'm going to be behind with, with with this run of digests. So, um, as, as I said, cover date March 1984, uh, those comics were released in December of 1983, and this column was written, as it's mentioned in the column, right before Labor Day of 1983, so sometime between September 1st and September 5th. How's that for being specific? This column can be found in Amethyst number 11, Arak 31, Arion 17, Atari Force 3, DC Comics Presents 67, Detective Comics 536, Flash 331, Jonah Hex 82, Justice League of America 224, Legion of Superheroes 309, The New Adventures of Superboy 51, Superman 393, Thriller number 5, Vigilante number 4, Wonder Woman 313, and probably others as well. As Dick teased in a previous Meanwhile column, which was a guest column on Thriller, this column is entitled Random Thoughts on the Convention Trail 1983, what Dick calls the most ambitious convention tour ever undertaken by DC and yours truly. So that list of conventions was detailed in an earlier column for cover date of May of 1983. And here we are right at the end of it as Dick is writing this column. So the conventions that he has already been to are Anaheim, New York, Philly, Ottawa, Chicago, San Diego, and Orlando. Again, this is all the summer of 1983. And he says, still to come are Boston, Hartford, Wichita, Wichita, and New York again. Apparently he missed Houston because of illness, and there was a show that was supposed to run in D.C., but that got canceled. So some takeaways from this column and from his experiences. He traveled to all of these conventions with Sal Amendola, DC's talent coordinator that he hired and talked about in a previous column. They would look at portfolios along the way, and he even writes, 
that they received so many on the convention trail and by mail that they are temporarily shelving this search after only a few months because of just all of the overwhelming piles that they need to go through. And he says, I want to spend some time digging through what they actually got, and they will announce at a later time for when people can submit once more, if they ever did. Uh, While on this convention tour, Dick would show a 10-minute film that was part retrospective and a look at the rest of 1983 and what was coming uh, for DC Comics in 1984. It was a 16mm film, he said. I tried looking on YouTube to see if I could find it. I would love to see what this presentation actually looks like. You know, was it put together professionally? Was it just put, put together with people in in the DC offices? Uh, I think that would be great. Along the way, Dick would meet um, other creators who aren't in New York, such as Murphy Anderson, who had been away from comics for 10 years while working on a monthly preventative maintenance magazine for the U.S. Army. He says he got to meet Joe Schuster and Jerry Siegel again, and then a whole bunch of people like Roy Thomas, Jerry Conway, Dan Jurgens, Mark Evanier, Dan Spiegel, Jerry Ordway, Mike Macklin, Jan Stranad, Don Newton, Steve Gerber, all people who live or work too far from the from the home office. And that reminded me of a column that he wrote a while back where all of these like freelancers that weren't in New York were invited to New York for a big, um, you know, like business meeting and, and getting a chance to meet your fellow collaborators. And it was a whole weekend. He talked about that he had to convince Jeanette Kahn to do this. And now this is the opposite, right? He's going to all of these other people. And those names that I just mentioned were also, many of them were also on that other list, which is cool. He says that he talked comics with Mike Friedrich from Star Reach and Des Skin, editor of Warrior, a top-notch British comic, he says. And that makes me think, oh, is that what then eventually leads to the British invasion or projects coming out of Warrior, you know, that that could be interesting to track. And then he also would talk to comic retailers along the way. Here are some of his his thoughts about some of these conventions. For Chicago and San Diego, he says, the best attended and best organized, although there was a mess up with hotels in Chicago. Ottawa was held on a modern college campus where they slept in small dorm rooms Some of the professionals were like, no way, and they got hotels. And then he says, the multimedia convention in Philly offered up an unprecedented steak and egg breakfast for attending pros. And the new hotel in Philly that was brand new and beautiful. And I tried to look to see what that could possibly be, but, you know, um, that, that was difficult to find. Dick talks a little bit about one future project. He says, in San Diego, he was attacked by a half-dozen crazed DC writers, six loonies that had concocted an idea for a new maxi-series. They charged at him, and in exchange for sparing my life, I gave them the go-ahead, he writes. And the DC challenge was born. More on that later, he says. Oh boy, there it is, (laughs) a a first mention in this column 
for the DC Challenge, which I think there is a column fully devoted to that. So we'll get to that when we get to that. Um, let's see. He says DC beat Marvel at the Comics Feud uh, panel in San Diego. And then he wrapped it up by saying he uh, he loved hearing the universally positive attitudes expressed by publishers, distri- distributors, dealers, and fans about the future of comics in this country. Amen. Um, some other little tidbits here. In the opening paragraph, he talks about flying. And he says, I like flying. I really do, providing I'm in an airplane. No matter what the ad said, I don't believe a man can fly. Uh, And then he talks about how getting home from the airport, the New York airport, is a hassle because he lives in Connecticut. So it's about 70 miles away. And he says, the ground trip home tires me out whether I have my car or, and this is the part I love, hop in a, or I hop in a limo. And I was like, you know, it's good to be the king. And that's it. That's it for this column, this little convention column. Um, not much in the way of, you know, behind the scenes stuff, but some interesting points along the way. Plus, it's nice to get a follow up to that May 1983 column where he did talk about uh, conventions. So you can go to the website, you can type in meanwhile in the search bar, and it will bring up uh any episode that has that word in it, and then you just have to go in and and see where it might fall. So as I mentioned, since I'm behind on my digests, and this meanwhile falls right when you probably will hear it, I should probably try to continue the meanwhile column matching up with whatever month I, I am discussing and with whatever month I drop it in. So we'll see. We will see if I'm able to stick to that schedule. Come and knock on our door. Come and knock on our door. We've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. With the kisses are hers and hers and his. Three's company too. Come and dance on our floor. Well, this is a completely unexpected TV Tuesday. It is a TV Tuesday about the show Three's Company, or at least the first season. So I'm watching this on Pluto. It is completely nostalgia television, right? It's comfort food. It's something that I used to watch when I was younger, and I got it in my head when I saw that it was advertised on Pluto. I was like, oh, I kind of want to watch that again. You know, again, it's quick. You can watch it while you're cooking, eating, um, you know, in between watching shows that are longer. I do it with Seinfeld. I did it, you know, years ago with Cheers and Frasier, etc. But but Three's Company, I mean, this was a show, as I said, that I loved as a kid. And I was like, okay, let me see if this holds up. I'm sure there are episodes that I don't remember. Maybe I haven't seen. Um... And I was like, okay, let's do it. So I watched the first season. It is only six episodes in the first season, which I was surprised about because it released in 1977, but in like the beginning of 1977. So eventually it would have full season pickups. It ran for eight seasons. In 1977, I was uh, about ready to turn five. So, you know, I don't remember if I was watching episodes in real time or as 
um, you know, in syndication later. But uh, what a treat. What an absolute treat. And I have to say, especially this early season, you know, the whole introduction of it, of these characters, of the situation, it still holds up. I mean, yes, it was made in the late 70s, so some of the humor is off-color, some of the humor is, um, well, some of the humor doesn't land, but other stuff really lands. All of the physicality with Jack, some of the back-and-forth mistakes that always happen, um, some of the jokes, you know, um, yeah, it works. It still works. I didn't realize that this was based on a British show. It shouldn't surprise me, but it was based on a show called Man About the House. And apparently a lot of the episodes were just a direct lift from that show. It's very much like The Office, right? Um, Of course, all the characters, you know, Jack is so funny. John Ritter, I mean, his physicality, his delivery, he's goofy, uh, he does a lot with the set and props and things like that. Um, he had this one thing where he was eating a banana and he smacked his forehead and the banana just shot all the way back onto the top of the fridge. And he probably didn't know where it was going to fall, so they just kept rolling. Uh, Janet is very much the straight person in the show, right? She's kind of like the one that they bounce the jokes off of. Uh, she's a florist. I, I knew that. Chrissy. Chrissy is a reverend's daughter. I did not. No, I didn't remember that as at all. And I actually like that she's not just a dumb bunny. I mean, she's actually funny and insightful, and she manages to get in some really good jokes. So the whole dumb bunny thing, I think, probably filters in later, but we'll see. We'll see how that development goes. Then you have the Ropers. I mean, clearly they're just like the old vaudeville couple that just, they throw around jokes about sex and marriage, you know, and it's all... Everything is played for the camera. Everything is played for the camera, for the audience, whether it's the Ropers, whether it's the the, the three roommates. Um, we had like one or two scenes that had that typical Three's Company misunderstanding, you know, like hearing Jack and Chrissy in the kitchen and Janet thinks they're having sex, you know, things like that. Maybe a whole plot line, but we haven't had like a, an entire episode devoted to it just yet. Um, a lot of the side characters are very broad, but again, this is a 70s sitcom. It totally makes sense. And I actually liked that they kept the whole notion that, you know, Jack is new to this situation, right? So for the first season, the first six episodes, he's constantly making jokes about, you know, wanting to walk into showers and, and there's some, some flirtation and, um, some kissing. There's even a scene early on where Janet and Chrissy are talking about, you know, would would you date Jack if if we didn't meet him this way? So uh, I know that that carries on um, later. The jokes, the flirtation, you know, it's it becomes more silly later. In this in this first season, it's real, quote unquote. You know, it's a, it's a little little more real. Um, what else? I mean, I know there's a mockumentary or a documentary about the show. There's controversies about, you know, Chrissy, Suzanne Summers leaving and all that. I'm, I'm laughing though. This show still has it. It's surprisingly. And, um, it reminds me of a lot of things that I used to watch when I was younger, out of the seventies into the eighties, things like soap, which is so brilliant, Benson, 
Good Times, Taxi, One Day at a Time, What's Happening, Mork and Mindy. Then you have things like Different Strokes, Leading into Facts of Life. You have All in the Family, Jefferson's, of course. Later ones like Family Ties. That's one I really want to watch because I just loved Alex P. Keaton. Um, Bosom Buddies, you know. There's a reason why all of these shows are classics, and it's very surprising that Three's Company, in in its early stages, uh, still works. And when I was looking at the season breakdown, many times that show would be in like third place of best shows of that year or that season. And then, of course, there were spinoffs like The Ropers, Three's a Crowd, all of it, again, based on all of the spinoffs from the British show, which was uh, cool to learn. So this is just one of those things where I'm like, you know, when I read a novel at my age, sometimes I think, okay, this is probably the last time I'm ever going to read this novel. So I feel that way about shows that I grew up with, things that I love, nostalgia. Let me read it one more time, experience experience these things again all these many decades later so that I can go, oh yeah, it actually does hold up, or look what I missed and um, just kind of relive uh, those those shows that were very formative to my humor or just, you know, things that occupied my time because I was a kid that watched and read a lot of things, you know. I didn't, I didn't really go out and play a lot. So, um, yeah, so there it is, Three's Company, season one. I don't think I will go through season by season, but if anything interesting pops up, I may come back and talk about it. Are you tired of fanboy comics podcasts? Looking for a show that really appreciates the comic storytelling medium and how it works? A show that looks at comics from any genre and anywhere in the world, comparing the storytelling techniques of different creators in different comics cultures, with manga, newspaper strips, European comics, and more, discussed alongside mainstream U.S. comics. A show that includes talks with well-known creators like James Robinson and Dan Juergens, and with less famous creators that you really should know. And hey, we'll even critique your comic. If you're looking for that show, then you're looking for Deconstructing Comics, and it's right here at deconstructingcomics.com. Also available in iTunes and on Stitcher. This is Tim saying, check out our show on Wednesdays. That's Deconstructing Comics. New Comics Wednesday, recommendations for the week of November 8th. Starting from Image Comics, the trade paperback for World Tree Volume 1, $9.99, collecting the first five issues. James Tiny and the Fourth, Jordi Berlair, Fernando Blanco. Um, this was something that I was waiting to uh, for a collection so that maybe I could read the first, uh, five issues and see what I thought of it. Um, some of, uh, if you've read a little bit about it, about, you know, it's like about message boards and internet and an undernet, you know, just, I don't know, just seemed kind of interesting. From a blaze on the way graphic novel, $19 and 99 cents by Jose Angel Aries, Paco Hernandez, both of them from Spain. Emma, a newly single cartoonist in her 30s, impulsively finds herself standing in Roncesvalles with her gaze fixed on Santiago de Compostela. Following the pilgrimage route known as the Way of St. James, she realizes the path she is traveling is bringing her closer to and somehow farther away from everyone around her. 
that the weight of her backpack is more than the clothes and pans inside, and that what she believed to be a simple walk to get to some miles behind her and her past is a chance to learn not only about the people she meets along the way, but also herself. A story of friendship, family, and learning, an emotional journey from which no one will return being the same. From Titan Comics, Inside the Mind of Sherlock Holmes hardcover, $24.99 by Cyril Liron and Bonoir Duan, The Case of the Scandalous Ticket. This has a special die-cut hardcover in the shape of Sherlock's mind, and it's a story that portrays the inner workings as he tries to solve a case. And it is richly detailed, um... I love how when you flip through the artwork, the the panel layouts, the sequential storyline, it's all mimicking his thought process. So there is no uniformity, you know, from page to page. It's just whatever the story needs. You can find a video if you look up inside the mind of Sherlock Holmes of someone flipping through the graphic novel. It's fairly brilliant. There's an interview with the artist. It is, it is amazing. It's, it's really just a pleasure to look at. I don't know if the story holds up, but the artwork and the creativity behind it is stellar. From Marvel, Thanos number one miniseries written by Christopher Cantwell. The only reason I'm shouting this out is because one of the alt covers by Phil Noto is emulating the Infinity Gauntlet number one cover by Perez. And, but it's done in, you know, Phil Noto's style. The coloring is kind of um, a little muted. You have Doctor Strange and Hulk basically in the same position as that original Perez cover. Uh, but then all the rest are, are other characters. So I used to collect uh, covers that were homages of Infinity Gauntlet, but I, I guess I don't really do that anymore. Some of it is because... Um, uh, I don't know. It's like they take it a little bit. I don't know why I don't. You know, I, I do it for Crisis 7. I do it for New Teen Titans number one. I do it for, you know, Dark Knight Returns number one. But I used to do it for, I guess, I guess I have to feel like it has like that punch, that creativity to it. And then I'll pick it up. From DC, we have one of their young readers books, Static Up All Night, $16.99 by Lamar Giles, Paris Elaine, and Yancey Labatt. And this is just the character of Static finally getting, you know, um, some other uh, exposure in the young adult line. And then Superman 78 returns with The Metal Curtain. Number one, $3.99, written by Robert Venditti, art by Gavin Goodry. Um, and this is a follow-up to the first Superman 78 miniseries. Batman 89 also has a miniseries called Echoes. Um, I really need to read all of those. So there you go. Those are your recommendations for the week of November 8th.
Theater Thursday, Theater History for November Part 2. I started this last digest, and I got the urge to just keep going. Unlike comic history, I'm not focusing on the years. Rather, this is about the days of a given month. And for this Part 2, I'm going to go through November 11th through the 20th, although there are some dates that aren't mentioned. Uh, we start with November 12th, 1989. Tommy Toon directs and choreographs Grand Hotel, which opens after previews. This is based on the early 30s play and film. The score is by Robert Wright, George Forrest, and Maury Yeston, Yeston, but the emphasis is on staging and spectacle. If you know Tommy Toon, you know that this was staged right down to the, the second. There was a revolving door upstage, a lot of chairs on stage. It was actually kind of open. It was an open set, um, but there, was, there were moments in it that um, really were just highly, highly theatrical. It ran for over a thousand performances. Jane Krakowski, this was one of her early works. Michael Jeter, who you might know won the Tony Award for Best Performance by a Featured Actor. And the song, We'll Take a Glass Together, um, is a song from this musical. They performed, Michael Jeter and another actor performed that song just like right before he won the award. And that song and that staging and that choreography, it is an amazing piece of musical theater. I mean, I watch it and I just get excited and um, the creativity, the pantomime, the dancing, it is amazing. So go look that up. We'll take a glass together from Grand Hotel. November 12th, 1943. That is the birth date of Wallace Shawn, who is now 80 years old. He's an actor. He's a playwright. You might know him from My Dinner with Andre or as Vicini in Princess Bride or Rex in Toy Story and elsewhere. For November 13, 1963, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The Play, based on the Ken Casey novel. This starred Kirk Douglas as Randall P. McMurphy, Gene Wilder as Bibbit, William Daniels as Harding, Ed Ames as The Chief, and Joan Tetzel as Nurse Ratched. What a cast. What a cast. And when I discovered that that's who originated these roles um, for the stage, I can kind of see those actors in the eventual portrayal of whoever played him in the movie, especially William Daniels, you know. Um, this production, though, only ran for 82 performances. There was a later off-Broadway production, and that had Danny DeVito as Martini, and he would play that in the movie, and William Devane as McMurphy. That production was a hit, and then that's the reason why they would eventually go on to uh, make the movie. Kirk Douglas tried to get the movie produced, and it just wasn't hitting, so he gave the rights to his son, Michael Douglas. By the time they got the movie rolling, Kirk Douglas was too old, so they went to look for some more actors, they thought about Gene Hackman, James Caan, Marlon Brando, Burt Reynolds, and then eventually they, they landed with Jack Nicholson, who would then go on to win the Oscar, and so would um, Louise 
Louise Fletcher for Nurse Ratched. November 13, 1997, Disney opens its second musical on Broadway after tryouts and previews, The Lion King, an adaptation of the animated film, music by Elton John, lyrics by Tim Rice, book by Roger Allaire's and Irene Meckie, with additional music and lyrics by Lebo M., Mark Mancina, Jay Rifkin, Julie Taymor, who was the director, and Hans Zimmer. What? Um, this show was just groundbreaking when it hit because Julie Taymor came up with this whole idea about using puppets and puppetry, and it was used to great effect. It is Broadway's third longest-running show after Phantom of the Opera, which is closed, and another musical that I'll talk about in a bit. And in history, it is, let's see, the highest grossing Broadway production of all time, having grossed more than $1.8 billion. As I mentioned, Julie Taymor was the director, and she would go on to direct Spider-Man the Musical. Hmm. November 14, 1996, Candor and Ebb's Chicago gets a revival in the style of Bob Fosse uh, by director Walter Bobby. Choreographer Anne Ranking, who also starred in the show, along with B.B. Newworth and James Naughton and Joel Gray. Um, this version of Chicago was stripped down. It was more of like a concert show. And in fact, that's how it started. It was a concert show for City Center Encores, uh, probably like a year before, and then it would go to Broadway. This is the other show that is right up there with Phantom of the Opera and Lion King. Uh, they are both running. Lion King and Chicago are still running. They are only hundreds of performances apart. So whichever one closes first, if the other one stays open, then it will become the second longest running musical. So Chicago has it now because it opened a year earlier than Lion King. November 15, 1956. Lil Abner, the comic strip by Al Cap, gets a Broadway musical. That's the overture that you heard at the top of this segment. Songs by Johnny Mercer and Gene DePaul. Michael Kidd was your director and choreographer. He was an amazing choreographer. Um, yes, this is based on the comic strip. So there you go, comics and theater, right? And almost all of the original cast from the Broadway show also play the characters in the in the little Abner movie. So you can watch the movie and you can see, uh, you know, Julie Newmar and um, Tina Louise, although I think that's a different, that's a different actor. Um, Stubby K um, and just everybody else, you know. So I've never seen it. I don't know the music, but I, I feel like now I really should because it is based on a comic strip, so we'll see. November 15, 1989, A Few Good Men by Aaron Sorkin opens on Broadway. The cast is headed by Tom Hulse, known for Amadeus. Stephen Lang is Jessup, and that's the role of Jack Nicholson in the movie. Uh, this show would be made into a movie in 1992 after 497 performances on Broadway, and it's one of the things that helped to catapult the writing career of Aaron Sorkin. November 16, 1959, Sound of Music opens on Broadway with Mary Martin, the Rodgers and Hammerstein classic with book by Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss. And this is a story all about the Von Trapp family 
as they gain a new governess and gain a new stepmom and all of the challenges as uh, the Nazis rise in, in, an, in and around Germany. The show runs for 1,443 performances. And then, and then, of course, there was a movie in 1965 with Julie Andrews. And uh, it would win the Academy Award for Best Picture. And, of course, it also features Christopher Plummer as uh, Captain Von Trapp. November 16, 1981, Merrily We Roll Along by Stephen Sondheim and George Firth, one of my favorite Sondheim musicals. It is told backwards. It is about three friends and their career, you know, trying to get into uh, composing and writing and theater and commercials and movie making and how one of them makes it big and the rest of them are kind of, you know, divided about that. And as I said, it goes backwards. It only ran for 44 previews and 16 performances. Ouch. There's a documentary um, by Lonnie Price about this musical and all of the ways that it came together and all the ways that it failed and all the ways that they became a family. And it's called Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Happen. It's, it's really sad. Um, it was, this musical was directed by Harold Prince. I love it. It gets revived all the time. I think it's playing even now, but yeah, I really do enjoy this musical. November 19, 1973 is the birth date of Savian Glover, who is now celebrating 50 years, which is crazy because I, I used to watch him as a kid and I used to think he was younger than me and he is, but not by much. Um, he is just a tap dancing prodigy. He had so many mentors in his life, Gregory Hines, all of the great black tap masters that were alive while he was growing up, and he has done a bunch of Broadway stuff as well. November 20th, 1984, I share a birth date, not a not a year, but a birth date with Jeremy Jordan from uh, the Supergirl TV show and from Newsies and from the last five years movie and other things as well. And November 20th, 1966, Cabaret opens on Broadway, the original production, uh, adapted by Joe Masteroff from Christopher Isherwood's The Berlin Stories, with a score by Kander and Ebb, just the the same team for Chicago. This uh, show would run for 1,165 performances. It features Joel Gray as the Master of Ceremonies. It wins eight Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Best Direction of a Musical, which was Harold Prince, there's that name again, and Best Performance by a Featured Actor for Joel Gray. It would go on to be Bob Fosse's, you know, one of Bob Fosse's great movies, and again, would win like a whole bunch of Academy Awards because of it. And the musical gets a really great revamp in 1993, by director Sam Mendes, and he directs a production in London featuring Jane Horrocks as Sally, um, Alan Cumming as the MC, and this is where the MC gets, uh, you know, a lot raunchier, a lot dirtier, but the show, unlike when they transferred it to Broadway after this revival, the show is very dark and very um, emotional and... The characters are fully realized. And Sally, played by Jane Horrocks, who you might know from Abfab, um, she's not good. You know, she's not like Liza Minnelli belting her guts out. 
There's a reason why she's in this cabaret. There's a reason why these people are in this situation, in this world, again, with the rise of, of the, the Nazis in Germany. Um, uh, there's a reason why they are the way they are. So she's not a good actress. And the way she sings cabaret, which you can find uh, on YouTube, if you look up the 1993 cabaret version, it is just chilling. It is chilling. It's an amazing performance. So... All right, there you go. That is part two for November Theater History. Danger Street, Part 8, taking a look at Danger Street, Issue 8, by Tom King, Jorge Fornes, Dave Stewart, Clayton Cowles, Book 8, The Warlord. This is a chunky issue, so let's just get to it. So, as of this recording, I have read up to Issue 10, so all of those issues filter into my thoughts here. So, here is your synopsis. Lady Cop and Jack Ryder are in New York having a late night not date after Lady Cop was unable to have her meeting with the Green Team's Commodore last issue. Bananas and Crunch of the Dingbats are in prison, being held by Lady Cop's partner Cooper, and just as it hits 10 o'clock, Starman causes a prison break on both ends of the prison, leaving behind a very frustrated Cooper. As the outsiders hold Manhunter captive, Abdul of the Green Team tells him the origin story of both groups, how they were all friends, playing a game on a playground, how they met a stranger who offered them a proposition that would alter their fates forever, a chance to decide once and for all who would be a member of the Green Team and who would be an outsider. As Abdul tells the story, we hear a little more from the actual outsiders arguing over how the story is being told or how they hear it. Codename Assassin updates the Commodore on Abdul resurfacing after one month in Hawaii, only to be missing once more. Did the Manhunter get him? Codename Assassin asks the Commodore if he can borrow the diamond arm, sensing that he's about to have one final confrontation with Manhunter. Warlord and Starman are reunited after the prison break, where we learn that Starman hasn't been feeling good for a while. Back on the not date, Lady Cop spills her own origin story to Ryder and proceeds to get him drunk to learn more about superheroes. The Green Team and Outsiders' origin flashback continues. We see the winners, the losers. We see which of them actually make up the specific teams that we've been following in Danger Street, and the stranger with the Helmet of Fate, the same one that we've been seeing at the start of each issue, sorts out their prize. Ryder is drunk now and spills info on the Commodore and the Diamond Arm. He even tells Lady Cop that he's a superhero. 
Codename Assassin has the diamond arm and through his willpower shapes it into a sword. Warlord is watching over Starman as Nonfat tells him that they need to get the Fate Helmet and finish what Starman started. Abdul reveals to Manhunter that they have a sword too, the sword that belonged to the Warlord before giving it to Cecil the Starmaker in exchange for that resurrection spell. Ryder reveals that he's the Creeper to Lady Cop, who proceeds to knock him out one-punch style. And on the final page wrap-up, Codename Assassin and Manhunter speak to each other to plan their final encounter while... Starman recuperates with the help of Warlord. Lady Cop is in deep thought about her next move. Creeper is still passed out on the street, and Abdul watches Manhunter as he talks to Codename Assassin. General thoughts for this issue. I think the best bits of this issue were the origin stories, both for the Green Team, the Outsiders, and for Lady Cop. For Green Team and the Outsiders, you know, lots of major revelations connections to each other, connections uh, to, you know, maybe some, a little bit of explanation of, of um, their background and why they turned out the way they did. Who is this mystery man that we've been seeing and now is part of their origin story? It gives a meaning to the very names of Green Team and the Outsiders in a manner that is right in line with the notion of how kids think. Remember, these are kids, right? I mean, that's the whole hook when we saw them in First Issue Special. You know, the Dingbats, Green Team, the Outsiders, they're all kid, kid groups, and, and they're living in this adult world. So, you know, these names coming out of silly things and silly games and silly names, and it all goes back to them being friends, until something comes to disrupt all that. And now we get to see, you know, or or we we learn their origin story and somewhere along the way they just turned into the groups that they are right now. Uh, the non-date is a lot of fun between Lady Cop and Jack Ryder and it goes a long way to show how Lady Cop is way smarter than him. And we just get a sense from this issue that the story should be moving towards a conclusion. You know, we only have four more issues after all. Um, for the artwork, there's real craft here. There isn't anything in the way of major action except for the prison break, which is, which is so funny. It's hilariously drawn and very clever. Um... But I do like some of the smaller moments as well. You know, the, the flashback origin story for Green Team and Outsider sometimes can be very beautiful. Uh, we get a frustrating look at how hard it is to push a straw into a juice box. Anytime there's a shared look between characters or one character trying to suss another one out, there's real emotion and thought in in the facial choreography, which I enjoy. Lady Cop's origin is very claustrophobic. Um, that double-page spread of Mary playing the game in the flashback, as I mentioned, that that's just really good, good stuff. I found myself very fascinated by this issue, but clearly I, I want more. Now, this is where I usually go and try to make connections back to all of my first issue special speculations, but I'm going to do something a little differently here. I'm just going to go through the issue but I'm going to group together all the various story scenes. 
Um, and within this uh, discussion, I will then say, okay, obviously this is one of the speculations that I've been talking about for a while. But I just think it might be easier to hear if I just go through, you know, all the scenes with the dingbats and all the scenes with Lady Cop, etc. So let's start with Lady Cop and Jack Ryder on their not date. Jack being smitten with her. The Helmet of Fate says that this is a surprise to Jack as he believed himself to be one who avoided the traps of such women. That narration almost makes you feel like up to that point, he's a normal dude, but then when we get that insight, it zaps you right back to the fact that Jack Ryder is still Jack Ryder. Of course he would think of women that way, right? Um, he, you know, it, it's right in line with the channel he works for and the ideas that he espouses, you know, he's like the worst of men. In a later scene, Lady Cop and Jack Ryder talk about Superman and Ryder when he hears the situation that Lady Cop is going through, he says, shouldn't you call Superman? And then she says, that's what everyone says. It's almost like her version of stop, manspla stop Superman-splaining to me because Cooper said it, Warlord said it, and it's just a constant reminder for Lady Cop about her origin, which we'll get in another page. Um, Lady Cop wonders why Jack isn't drinking wine, he's drinking water, and he says, without discipline, sometimes I get all funny, and I wrote here, or all creepy. Lady Cop tells Jack her origin story, and it all comes out, right? Everything we've seen before, stuff like, you know, the guy that killed all those people, he was laughing, and sometimes he was explaining, and I wondered if laughing was a clue to his identity. I really hope we get an explanation behind it. I, I hope we get who this really is and it ties into some of my larger speculations about how um, all of these origin stories might be connected in some way or maybe there's someone from the future that goes back to the past just like with the green team and the outsiders. Was it Abdul? Is that who we're seeing? Is it non-fat? Is it everybody? You know, what's going on? Will we get that? I hope so. You know, because she says, she it's another mention where she says um, he dropped the Ace of Spades after he was done, before he left, and we've been seeing the Ace of Spades in several issues. And then the whole time while this was going on, she called Superman. I always wanted to be Superman when I grew up, not like Superman, like Lady Superman or something. I love that dialogue because it connects to her own nickname of Lady Cop. She continues, that day I decided to be a cop. At least I could hear my own voice. And there it is, you know, this notion that Superman, for lack of a better phrase, uh, let her down. So she had to become her own hero. And if you go back to issue three, when she was trying to do a search for clues to blue heroes or blue super beings, they all turned out to be heroes. And someone even said, why are they heroes and not villains? Why are you looking for a hero and not a villain? And I thought, is that thing, you know, is she holding it against Superman that he didn't help her? And is that her character flaw? You know, Tom King loves to play with flawed characters. So um, that helped to connect back to her origin. Um, 
Lady Cop is clearly getting Ryder drunk. She knows it's going to loosen him up a little bit. And he starts talking about superheroes as well. Uh, he even mentions Apocalypse and Darkseid. And I thought, why? You know, this was the first time I felt like the story got a little too on the nose because he just starts talking about the new gods. And they are part of this story, even though we don't see them in this issue. So I thought that was little odd story-wise, but notice that she's not drinking anymore once he starts drinking. And then later, Ryder tells Lady Cop that Commodore has a diamond arm connecting to all the diamonds that she found in the desert, uh, that he traded it for the Helmet of Fate, which she has. And he even says, you know, I'm a superhero. And um, I wrote here, maybe the Commodore should have taken lady cops meeting because then none of this would have happened she wouldn't have learned any of this information and then finally between those two he reveals himself as the creeper and she decks him and once he's laid out she just says what is wrong with everyone and i just thought that was so good imagine jack Ryder standing there one second and then the next it's the creeper and he's yellow and he's got a red boa and green hair and undies. You know, why wouldn't she deck him? That was brilliant. I, I really enjoyed that. Let's go to the dingbats and the princes, Warlord and Starman. As I said, the prison escape scene is, it's just very good. It's just very, very good. The use of, of the sound effect to, uh, you know, cause destruction in those panels is so much fun. I love that Bananas calls Cooper hero cop. You know, he says, if she's lady cop, you're hero cop. Um, that's great. Cooper saying fudge. He keeps saying fudge, fudge, fudge. But then right at the end, he says the F word, even though it's all, you know, symboled out. And he says effing dingbats. So that was great. That sequence was a lot of fun for an issue that probably wasn't going to allow for a lot of humor, but then we we at least got that, which is great. When we finally see Starman reuniting with Warlord, something is very wrong with him. He's sick. And if you look at the artwork, he has these little green bubbles. And the last time we saw that was when Good Looks was sick in issue one, right at the time when the ritual was being performed, the spell with Metamorpho and Warlord and Starman, and they got Atlas. And I remember saying, you know, did Good Looks get sick because of that spell? And if we're seeing it here with Starman, and you could, um, knowing what I know about future issues, and clearly Starman probably has the Atlas power in him, then you can see how it transferred from one person to another, and maybe this is the visual shorthand that we're getting to suggest that they are all connected. By the way, there's a great transition from one of the scenes with the Dingbats into Lady Cop, where Warlord is being offered... Uh, by Crunch to have some grapes, right? Grapes have been a thing throughout this whole series. And he, you know, Crunch says, yeah, you know, I got the red ones there, the good ones. And Warlord agrees. And then when we cut to the lady cop scene, she's pouring wine. So it's a, it's a great transition. You know, it's, it's subtle, but, um, you know, grapes to wine, the great transition. And then I was also thinking, and um, 
this is really nothing, but Tom King has said that the musical Into the Woods was an inspiration for this story because it's taking a whole bunch of characters and mixing them together into a great ensemble piece. And I thought, are the grapes the Danger Street version of the beans in Into the Woods? Because if you know Into the Woods, if you know any fairy tale that has to deal with beans, I mean, they were such a, an integral part to the musical. And I was like, oh, is that what the grapes are? You know, are they um, a substitute for the beans? Not in any importance, though, just, just as like a, a visual, you know. All right, let's go to Abdul, Outsiders, Manhunter, and their origins, because this is everything that I was saying about my speculations as I was reading first issue special. I was thinking that there was a connection between Green Team and the Dingbats, but now we see that there is a connection between Green Team and the Outsiders. Maybe we'll still get a connection to the Dingbats. So I love that. Um, and I also mentioned how a lot of those groups and a lot of those characters in first issue special, most of them had somebody behind the scenes or somebody that was um, their handler or their helper. And we get that here, right? This strange person with the helmet of fate inside a bowling bag, the same one that Warlord and Starman had at the, in the very first issue, you know, is he, he's obviously the one behind them, you know, at least in this version of the origin. I don't know if there's going to be a reset by the time issue 12 comes out, but I love that there are just small little hints of what I was trying to speculate. You know, it's actually coming out, so that's great, even though the origins are completely different, right? The origin of the green team and outsiders in this story is way different from what we got in first issue special, where they didn't know each other, obviously. Um, none of the teams were friends before they became teams. So that's why I keep thinking, okay, that's how they are for Danger Street, but will something reset it so that they then become the origins as we knew it in first issue special, which is very trippy, but you know, whatever. So what is the game? The game was played on a playground on some asphalt that had a whole bunch of cracks and you had to jump to each crack um, on landing on one foot, but you had to jump on a crack that had green grass sticking out of it or green weeds. If you missed it, if you fell, you, you were out, right? So if you crossed the playground or this section of the playground and you managed to stay on all of those cracks, well, then you were on the green team. If you fell off those cracks, you were out, and then that meant you were an outsider. Now, it seems like that should be very obvious, you know, when when you read it on the page. You're like, oh, I get it. I see how the names play into the game, right? Full disclosure, as I was reading this issue, that connection just went right over my head. I was so engrossed in the story and the information of um, what we were getting and how kind of fun this was and, and, you know, kind of heartbreaking that I missed that explanation, even though it's there several times in, in this issue. It wasn't until a scene in issue 10 that I went, oh, the names match with the game that we learned. So it just goes to show that no matter how deep dive 
I go on some of these things and how I try to make connections and I look at everything, I miss things as well because sometimes I just get hyper-focused. But I do like all of that explanation. And let's talk about this guy, this guy that we've been seeing at the start of every issue. He's here in this origin story. This has to be time travel of some time. He has the helmet of fate. He has the same shirt. He has the bowling bag. He has brown skin. It has to be Abdul, right? Or is it non-fad? Or because we see a shot of him, this kind of like worm's eye view of him, suddenly his hair doesn't look like Abdul at all. He's in silhouette. The sun is behind him. You don't really see his face. His hair almost looks like the Commodore's hair. Or maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's Warlord. Or maybe it's all of the characters um, cycling through as they invade all of the origins. I don't know. Just something very, when I saw that, I was like, wait, that's not Abdul hair. That's not non-fat hair. That's Commodore hair or Mark Shaw hair or Warlord I was or Starman even you know or Orion you know I got very confused and I got a little annoyed because I was like I thought it, I had it all figured out then they throw in that little one panel and that's why I got this notion of oh maybe it's not just one person going back in time maybe it's a whole bunch of people trying to reset things um, and and maybe it'll change by the time we get to issue 12 I don't know as I said before, the double-page spread of Mary playing the game is really beautiful, and so is the narration from The Helmet of Fate. I'm going to read it here because I actually I really like it. Deep in the past, a labyrinth sat in a field. No one knew why it was there or who built it. Some said it was the gods that they enjoyed watching the folly of those who attempted its challenges. Some said it was the first tribes showing the gods that they could bear such challenges and emerge triumphant. Some just said that it had, that it had always been there and always would be there. That life itself came with the maze for life itself was the maze. And who were we to question that eternal truth? And, you know, it made me think a little bit of, of time travel when they say some just said that it, it had always been there and always would be there. Um, you know, first issue special was definitely a maze to figure out. So is this story. Uh, it's a labyrinth. Um, the whole notion of emerging triumphant, that feels like a theme for Warlord and Starman, wanting to become members of the Justice League of America, wanting to be somebody. So that little narrative thing is pretty great. It, it really is. Um, once they finally decide on who is an official Green Team member finally and which one is an outsider, Mary says, it's just random. Any of you could have tripped. Don't think you're special. I love that word special because, hey, first issue special, right? And she's right. The cracks on the ground are like different timelines, different paths, you know, anyone could stumble, anyone could have landed on either side, just like Mary did, and there's a lot of cool ideas there. And finally, Abdul says, something evil was created that day, it wasn't the outsiders, but then he gets cut off to a new train of thought, and you have to wonder, was he going to say Green Team, was he going to say the Commodore, um... But it clearly he has a new understanding of what actually happened. 
Codename Assassin and Commodore. Their scenes are, you know, not we, they're not major, um, but we get to see a little bit more um, about this upcoming battle between Codename Assassin and Manhunter. Um, you almost get the sense that Codename Assassin is just so fed up with the Commodore shit because the Commodore just doesn't care. Like, he, he's like, he's like, oh, you know, thanks for the update. You're gonna go fight him. Great. Try not to lose. And he's just a little shit. He really is. And then he has a final line that's, um, you know, kind of, it's it's small, but it's interesting, where he says, I am here for him, meaning the Manhunter. I have always been here for him. Inevitability, right? Like, it's all just like, this whole series is, is about fate and connections and... Um, you know, does it go back to the origins of some of these characters? Will we ever see that? You know, as I said, we only have a few issues, but there you go. That's my breakdown of the issue. If I go to any Watchmen connections, Watchmen number eight had the prison, uh, prison break for Rorschach. So, so did this issue have a prison break, right? And when you look at the cover of this issue, which is a vintage, picture of the outsiders it made me think of all the times that we would see the picture of the minutemen in watchmen and we did see that at the opening of issue eight for watchmen we saw the minutemen uh, quite a lot and this cover by jorge Fernez emulating real vintage photos for people you know at the turn of the century turn of the you know from 18th to the 19th century where, um, you know, they were deemed odd or freaks or outsiders. And this is obviously playing on that with the color, with the clothing, with the construction of it. And we got all of the outsiders there. We got Mighty Mary, Amazing Ronnie, Lizard Johnny, Old Doc Scary, Billy the Big Head Boy, and Harry Larry, and one other person who I don't know who that's supposed to be. And then the alt cover is The Warlord by Mike Grell, the creator of The Warlord. So we got Travis Morgan and one of the characters known as Shakira, who could turn into a black cat. We see his sword, we see a dinosaur in the background, and we see the eternal sun blazing high in the sky. Um, a fairly classic image for The Warlord by, by his creator. All right, there you go. That is Danger Street number eight. We will get to Danger Street number nine next time around. Email me, peter at thedailyrios.com. Go visit the website and the Instagram for The Daily Rios. Follow my Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. Send me your book club recommendations. Send me your promo. Send me your audio talkback clips. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 645 for Saturday, November 11th, 2023. Talk to you soon. That is your room. And this is our room. One false move and we take you right to the vet. <laughs>